Thanks for that. Um, let's put this on. How about that? That's, that's the way these things are supposed to work, isn't it? All right, let's pray before we talk about this together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for this amazing chapter uh, in 1 Corinthians. Uh, please clear our minds from distractions now so that we can focus on what you have to say to us. Uh, and we pray that we won't just assume we know what this is all about, uh, but that you'll help us to uh, think hard, to listen hard, to uh, search our own hearts and minds as well so that we can uh, work out what we should do in response to this part of your word. And we ask this so that we'll bring glory to Jesus, uh, to you, our Father. Amen. One of the things uh, that's really easy to do is that if you just take something and you make it an object on its own, uh, you can pretty much make it say or do whatever you feel like. Uh, for example, you'll see on the front of the lectern here, you might need to stand up just to uh, have a quick squeeze, but uh, we've got this picture here, I'm going to lift it off, uh, there you go, now you can see it, love is patient and kind, love is not jealous or boastful, it's not arrogant or rude, it doesn't do various things, it does various things. Um, you see things like this in uh, kind of second-hand shops all the time, uh, or, or the trendy new shops that look like they're selling second-hand stuff, but it's really just come across from... Southeast Asia, and it's not actually second-hand at all, which is where I got this one from. But there's nothing about the Bible on it. Uh, it just seems like a good thing to say, something about love. And I would imagine that if there's one part of the Bible that a lot of people who know nothing about the Bible have heard, it would be this. Uh, how many of you have heard these words before somewhere else? Uh, let, let me uh, ask, where have you heard it? A wedding? Um, how many other weddings? All right, yeah, it's a pretty good guess, isn't it, that this is going to come up in a wedding. Uh, any other context where you've seen it? No? It's just the wedding passage, right? So uh, I've certainly been asked to take a lot of weddings, uh, and it's not been unusual for me to be asked to speak on 1 Corinthians 13. But let me demonstrate just how easy it is to kind of get something out of context and make it say what you want it to say. So if you look at the front of the room here, right, you've got a banner where Lake Cadai Public School. Let's just take something. Let's grab the word opportunity. All right, opportunity. I want to talk to you today about opportunity. Opportunity is a, a significant thing because we live in a country where there's lots of opportunity. And I've got the opportunity now to talk to you about opportunity. And you've got the opportunity to listen to me now. I said, I can go anywhere I want to. Good night. But if you take opportunity and you put it back onto that banner, you've got three things. You've got spirit, you've got opportunity, and you've got excellence. And if we want to understand why they're on that banner, that school banner, we'd probably have to go back and talk to the people who designed it, the people who'd asked for it to be put onto the banner, to understand what role that word plays on that banner in this school. Right? I assume it's one of their core values. Or if we were to go over and look at this side of the room over here, uh, there's two signs, right? Two words we could extract. Here's one on boys and here's one that says girls. Let me talk to you about girls and boys today. All right, Steve Biddle's written a book on raising boys. He's written a book on raising girls. Uh, he talks there about a number of things that are very valuable in raising children, particularly as they hit the adult, uh, the kind of adolescent years, pre-adult years. So let's discuss... Um, pre-adult, adolescent raising of boys and girls. 
Now, you think, okay, I've done something quite legitimate, right? I've taken the word boys, I've taken the word girls, but I've lifted it out of the context. And the context really is that you're not embarrassed when you go to the toilet. Because that one's the one for girls, and that one's the one for boys. Now, I reckon what's happened is we've lifted 1 Corinthians 13 out of its context so often that we probably simply see it as a lovely passage about love. So what I've done is I've printed up the passage again. and You don't need that if you've got a Bible, but I just want to point something out. To put the piece back into the puzzle, we need to ask, where does 1 Corinthians 13 fit in this letter? Uh, and, you know, if, if you know anything about the way books work, you, you say to me, I know, it, it fits between chapter 12 and chapter 14. Yes, very good. But what's chapter 12 and chapter 14 about? This is the last verse, right, of chapter 12, which says, Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. Then we have chapter 13. Jump down to the way he starts chapter 14. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially the gift of prophecy. And then he goes on to talk about prophecy and tongues um, and, and the role of the Spirit and the building, strengthening, encouraging and comforting of God's people. Eagerly desire the greater gifts. Eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit. It, it's almost like he's got a flow of argument and he hits the pause button. And what he does when he hits the pause button is to focus us deeply on the issue of love in 1 Corinthians. How does love then relate to what he's been saying about the body, about gifts, and next week we'll go on to talk about contrasting gifts. And the example will be tongues as opposed to prophecy. How does love relate to these things? That's what we need to be asking. So we need to work through to have a look at how this piece fits in the puzzle of this letter. And so let's work through quickly because there's so much uh, that we ought to look at in terms of application. So, verse 1 to 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge... And if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. What we've got here is a very sobering equation. And that is, you can be very impressive as a church. You can be the kind of church that speaks in these exotic tongues, whether they're tongues of men or of angels, you can have extraordinary insights. You can have the gift of prophecy. You can fathom mysteries. You can have all knowledge. And you can have a faith that is unbelievable. And I don't think that the Apostle Paul has randomly plucked things out of the sky at this point. Because what he's talking about here, he's going to go on to talk about, and he's already been talking about some of these things. See, it's a, it's a picture of where the Corinthians are at. Back in uh, chapter 1, he talks about the not lacking in any spiritual gift. They're not lacking in any spiritual gift. They're very well endowed when it comes to things of the Spirit. They can brag about their gifts. They can, they can actually boast of what it is that they're able to do when they gather together as God's people. But what Paul says, you can have all of that 
You can even be incredibly generous, at least in appearance, giving of your wealth to the poor, even giving over your body to hardship, going through tough times. But if you don't do that with love, then you gain nothing, you have nothing, you are nothing. It's a very sobering equation. And I take it as we look at this, these aren't random points. This is actually very significant for the church in Corinth. Because in all of the praise that you see, and there are bits and pieces of praise for the Corinthians, through this letter, the one thing that you will never find them praised for is their love. You see, I think as we read on, And we listen to this picture, love is patient, love is kind. It doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud. It does not dishonour others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs and it does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. As you read that list, you are reading a list of what the Corinthians are not. Every point, think about it. See, we've already seen their impatience. Go back to when they met together for meals. They didn't wait for each other. Some were pigging out, some were getting drunk and they were leaving others to miss out. Love is kind. There was certainly a lack of kindness in the way people were being treated. It does not envy. Hmm. Doesn't boast. Well, there's a lot about boasting, isn't there? It's not proud. It doesn't dishonour others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. You can turn this around, can't you, and and see the picture of what the Corinthians are like. In fact, to take this sign here and hang it up in Corinth, we should probably put it up like this. In fact, this whole series we've called the Upside Down Church. Because at every point you think you know how they ought to live, and yet when you read it, it's saying they're actually not living that way. And, and, And even when you go back, say, to that passage about the Lord's Supper, he says, I can't commend you in these things because you're not having a meal of the Lord. It's just not going on. If anything, the Corinthians are are the not church, not the our church. They're missing out. They're they're actually the very antithesis of what love is. It's a sobering indictment upon them, what we've got here. And they're focused on all of these things, aren't they? So they're focused, well, we'll see it more next week, and that's one of the problems with taking it a chapter at a time, but they are so focused on things like tongues and prophecy. Um, but they'll cease, he says in verse 8. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope and love, but the greatest of these is love. So the thing that they're they're priding themselves in, the things that are the focus of their attention as a church, are things that are not permanent. They're they're temporary things. Their gifts, their abilities, the things that they're proud of and boasting in, they'll pass. They're they're not lasting. See, why has God given gifts to the church? 
you thought about that? Why does he bother actually equipping the church with various gifts? If you're wondering what the answer to that question is, come back next week, because that's what chapter 14 is about. But just to give you a sneak preview, it's so the church can be built up. Why does the church need to be built up? Because it's full of sinful people. It's full of people who struggle, people who disappoint, people who are immature. Gifts are actually given to build, to edify, to encourage, to comfort, to strengthen the church. That's what they're for. Think about it. When we are with Jesus, how much edification will we need? How much repentance of sin will there have to be? No, we're going to look forward to a time when there's fulfilment, when there's completion, when we've arrived, when there's a freedom from, from suffering and sinfulness and, and pain and struggle and death and dying. That's what we're looking forward to. And indeed, he's going to go on and talk about that in chapter 15. So much great stuff in this letter. So many different issues he touches on. But the thing is, they're so focused on now that they've made a, a good thing into the best thing and so turned it into a bad thing. I think I heard that somewhere once. Prophecies, tongues, knowledge, all of that, one day it will pass. It, it's not complete. And Paul reminds us that we look forward to a day when, when we will see things really clearly, when we will see Jesus face to face, where we'll see ourselves as we truly are because we will know fully as we are fully known. So don't make the emphasis on gifts. Don't make the emphasis on what you have, what you can do. Don't be proud of, of the particular skills and talents and, and resources and opportunities that we've got in our midst. No, focus on something else. Focus on, well, let's read it. Verse 13, these three remain. Faith, Hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. Let, let's focus on these three things. Faith and hope and love. There is the sign of the spiritual church. That, that we live in faith. That is, we fully depend upon God for all things. We're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for our forgiveness for life. For, for being a new creation. We're actually trusting that God has our futures looked after, that he has our presence secured, that he's dealt with it all in the past. So you see, the very expression of, of being in a spiritual relationship with God starts with faith. We put our trust in Jesus. And of course, we're not there yet. So having put our trust in Jesus, we look forward in hope. Life is difficult here and now. There is weakness and frailty and struggle here and now. And we look forward to a time when there will be completeness. When everything will be put right. We look forward in hope. And because God has secured things and we can put our trust in him. And because there are no barriers to what we look forward to in hope. We're liberated to love. We don't need to be looking out for our own interests. We don't need to be... Um, protecting number one. We don't need to be all about ourselves. God's got that covered. So we can look out to those around about us. We can actually learn to love. Faith, hope and love. They're the signs of a spiritual church. 
And the greatest of these, he says, is love. Now, I've actually learned something during the week, I think, um, from this passage. Uh, I used to think that, that uh, what it's saying here is that these three remain. Well, they, I, I never took the word remain very seriously. Some versions have abide. Um, but I think what he's saying is that the very core of how we relate to God is in faith, in hope, and in love. And we'll continue to relate to God in that way, I think, for eternity. I didn't used to think that. Because there's a sense in which, yeah, we're, we're looking forward in faith and we get the realisation of our faith when we're in heaven. But will we ever cease to trust God? To put our faith in God? I, I think we'll be called to always do that. And hope. I mean, there's certainly a strong sense in the Bible that, that hope is, is something that, that is kept for us in heaven, that we look forward to the fulfilment of. But, but if we are to live with God for all eternity, won't there be a continuation of hope? That, that we'll rejoice in the fact that God has next year covered and, and the next 10,000 years covered? But love is different. And I think its core difference is this. Love comes from God. It's God's initiative to us so that we can respond to him in love in return. God doesn't have to trust us or have hope in us. No, it's not that God looks down and goes, ah, I see a lot of potential with Gary. Yeah, I think I might pick out Gary. Because, you know, I, I, I hope he's going to come good. And No, it's while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. All right. So the greatest of these is love. What then does this mean for us as a church? What does it mean for us as, as Christian brothers and sisters? How can we be putting these things into practice in the way that we live? Um, because I think this can be incredibly practical. Let me say a couple of background things and then try and tease this out. First of all, in the original language, there are four words for love. Uh, you'll only get three of them in the Bible. Uh, and uh, in particular, two of them occur a lot. The word agape and the word phileo. Now, from phileo, we get things like... Uh, Philadelphia, meaning brotherly love. There's a number of compound words that go with phileo. Agape, or agape, however you meant to say in ancient language, I don't know, and I don't think it really matters, is the love that is consistently pictured as God's sacrificial giving of himself in Jesus for us. Um, now, I think they can be used interchangeably, we don't want to make too much of that. But it's the word agape that comes up again and again and again and again in this passage. And I think that points us to the fact that if we want to know what love really looks like, don't simply look to the warm fuzzies and a special relationship that just makes you feel all gooey inside. Now look to the fact that God demonstrated his love for us in this. What did he do? For God so loved the world, he. What did he do? 
This is love. Not that we love God, but that God loved us. And what did he do? See, the love of God is seen supremely in giving Jesus to die for us. That's where the love of God is. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5. This is love, not that we love God, but but that he loved us and gave his son to be a sacrifice of atonement for our sins. That's what love looks like. Or John 3.16. For God so loved. The word so there means in this way. God loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, it's in the death of Jesus that we see what love looks like. You might have heard me say this is an illustration I, I, I use many, many times. But if, if you want to see whether or not God loves you, don't look to the circumstances of any given day, week or year. Because you'll have good things, you'll have bad things. And you'll be like that little child that grabs the daisy and pulls off the, off the petals. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. And it would be confusing at best if you just look to your circumstances. But if you look to Jesus, there you will see absolutely crystal clear, historically grounded evidence of the love of God for you. And think about it. What more could God give you, give me, than of himself? What greater gift could there be than to give your life? And we know that you know, it's an impressive thing for a person to give their life for another. And that's why there's such a, a depth of feeling about days like Anzac Day. When we think about those who died actually looking to save others. But how much more when we're talking about the creator of the universe giving his life to save others? Friends, that's where we see love. That's, that's love supreme. And when we realise that, what we discover is that this is a passage that will make best sense. In fact, it will only truly make sense when we insert the word Jesus back into this passage. So let me read it with Jesus. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus doesn't envy. Jesus doesn't boast. Jesus is not proud. Jesus doesn't dishonour others. Jesus is not self-seeking. Jesus is not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus never fails. That's where you will see what love really looks like in Jesus. And to be frank, it's the only place where you'll see what it really looks like. Because if we wanted to insert another name, Salt Community Church is patient. Sometimes. Is kind. Yeah, fair bit. Doesn't envy. I don't know. Ness and I were saying we both envied something this morning for another church. Doesn't boast. I don't know. It's just that we're the best. Um, (laughs) It's not proud. Doesn't dishonour people. Not self. You see, you can go through 
And we cannot say this of our church. We can say we're trying. We can say we do the best job we can. We can say, look, we're doing better here than we're doing there. And we can make a commitment to improving. But we can't just insert our name. We can't do it corporately. And, friends, I know that we can't do it individually. Is there anyone here who could say that they never envy? I mean, look, praise God if you can. That'd be awesome. But look, we're struck out already. Okay, so I don't need to go through any of the others. We've already failed. Now, what does that mean to fail in this regard? Because let's let's be serious here. Are we just dealing with... We we know that this is more significant than what you put on on a Hallmark card, right? This isn't just a card that you give on Valentine's Day that says love is, love is gentle, love is kind, love is pure, love is, love is your eyes, darling. Like, it's, not, it's not that. No, and, and nor is it simply, you know, like a sign that you can buy from Curon Bookshop to put on the wall, um, you know, accompanied by a little cat dangling from a clothesline out of somebody's T-shirt. You know, love is kind, like a kitten. I've never met a kind kitten, but anyway. <laughs> so it's, it's really easy just to deal with you know, platitudes here, isn't it? Just words. What does it mean to say this? And let, let me say what it means to say this. We would be under an incredible tyranny. We would be constantly oppressed if God was to hold this against us. Because I can say... In all honesty, there are so many times when I'm impatient and unkind. And when I envy and when I boast. When I'm proud and I shouldn't be. When I actually don't treat people with the honour that they deserve. And I don't always persevere. And I don't always hope and trust and protect. And sometimes I do keep a record of wrongs. And to be honest, there are times when I've found great enjoyment out of evil rather than rejoicing in the truth. And all that is to my shame. And I've just got a hunch that it might be true for you as well at times. Is that right? So that's quite a tyranny to live under, isn't it? No, it's not. Not if we're in Christ. See, the wonderful thing about Jesus is that Jesus fulfills this for us. And as we put our trust in Jesus, the Bible has this concept of like being united with Christ, being in Christ. So God sees us as being beneficiaries of all that Christ has done. And the wonderful thing is that that God can look at us and accept our partial, weak and compromised love even though he's a holy and perfect God because he sees us in Christ where things are complete and perfect and whole. This passage, it's, it's a massive bully to anyone trying to live up to the standards of God on their own without Christ. As is the whole of Scripture. And that's what led Martin Luther 
to despair. He, he, he was around 500 and something years ago, if you haven't met him. Right? Maybe we'll meet him one day. But he was a monk and he just got to the point where he knew that every time he opened the Bible, it would be pointing out his failure. Until he realised that Christ had died for him. To give him forgiveness and to swap his righteousness and give it to Martin Luther. And he does that for us. And I thank God that we can love in our weakness, in our frailty, in our partiality. And that that love can be significant because of Jesus. But how does it work itself out in church? And this is not a cop-out, but we need to keep looking ahead. Chapter 14, we'll talk a bit about that, quite significantly. Um, And at the very heart, it's about putting others before ourselves. It's about being a church that actually is full of people who consider others' needs and not just their own. Who, who look around about and think, how can I serve, how can I contribute, not just how can I be served and what can I get out of this place? Uh, we'll, we'll be a community of people who see, because God has given us gifts to use, that we have something to invest in one another. And I hope that the collectively we'll be a community that sees that we've got something very special and look beyond the walls of our church, to those around about us in the suburbs, in the townships, in the city, those who don't know Jesus, so we can point to God's love for them in Christ. Jesus washed his disciples' feet at that last uh, gathering before he was crucified. John's Gospel talks about it. And when he did that, he made a point of doing the most obnoxious, filthy, menial task for those around about him. Doing something that you wouldn't ask the apprentice slave to do, really. Wash the filthy feet of someone who's been walking in in dirty, filthy streets where animals are pooping everywhere, And yet Jesus sat down with a bowl and a towel and he washed his disciples' feet. And in doing that, he wanted to teach them two things. He wanted to give them a glimpse about what he was really going to do, which was going to far surpass washing their feet. He was going to wash the whole of their soul, inside and out, through his death on the cross. But he also wanted to set an example. He wanted to show the way that we should treat each other with love. And he said that people will know as they look at your love, your sacrificial love like this, that there's something spiritual going on. Are we known around about by the love that we have one for another? That would be a good thing to pray, wouldn't it? That we will love and that that love will build a reputation. 
Not for our sake, but for their sake. And then, not only is this relevant to church, and that's where the, that's that's the context, right? That's where, what he's talking about, church. But it flows out into our relationships, doesn't it? And I want to suggest that we take a little bit of time in this passage over the next week and we think about some of the key relationships that we have. Uh, for those of you who are married with, with your husband or your wife, uh, for those of you who are parents with your children or grandparents with your grandchildren, for those of you who have work colleagues, to think about them, to, to, to actually think about others who are at school with you or at university, um, thinking about some of your clients perhaps from your job or maybe your boss uh, or, or your patients if you're in the medical area. Um, think about the people that you mix with and how you live towards them. Are you patient with them? Are you kind? Do you find yourself envying that neighbour, that colleague, that person? Um, how does it fit with being self-seeking? How are you talking about others around about you? Do you find yourself getting easily angered? See, as we, we start to think about the people who are close to us, the people in our relationships, I think we've got stuff to work on. And one of the things that I've noticed is that, sadly, my behaviour in this regard can sometimes be worse with the people who are closest. So I think there's work to do at home. All right. Well... There's lots there, I think, for us to put into practice. And we're going to take a little bit of time now to pray. And um, as we have a time of prayer, uh, I want to share a couple of things with you uh, for us to think about and to pray about.